The Sultan has a lofty pavilion, where he sits most of the time. There came forth from the gate of the palace about 300 slaves, some carrying in their hands bows and others having in their hands short lances and shields. The interpreter stands at the gate of the council palace wearing fine garments of silk. Anyone who wishes to address the Sultan addresses the interpreter and the interpreter addresses a man standing near the Sultan and that man addresses the Sultan. Yazare, miawezo. And welcome to season two episode crap I've forgotten. Four. <laughs> yes, welcome to season two episode four of Africa's Untold Stories. Yeah. Um. Yes, today's episode is going to be entitled Ibn Batota: A Lesson on Culture Shocks. Culture shocks. I wanted to specify. Yes, culture shocks. Right. I, I thought about specifying it like uh, medieval culture shocks or something. Hmm. But I was like, eh, it might be relevant for a time period to yeah. generalize it. Culture shocks. Culture shocks it is. Yes. As as we go on, you'd understand why that is the particular <laughs> title. Okay. I'm looking forward to it, actually. So. Right. So, um, first of all, Ibn Batota, he why who is he why are we talking about him um uh just a direct overview of how significant this person was in particular Mm -hmm. he is a man who traveled well most of the world actually um you say most of the world most well okay let's put it this way um ibn batuta is was the most well-traveled person before the invention of the steam engine oh wow yo yo okay yeah i guess you 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 tell us how much how much how much distance yeah 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 Yeah, he he traveled oh you're telling us now okay he (laughs) yeah i'm i'm telling you now don't worry um he uh unlike the other episodes in this episode we'll start with the hype session and then we'll, we'll uh, continue from I, I like how it's good <laughs> um yeah yeah so um he he traveled a, a total of about one hundred and twenty thousand kilometers yo that's enough to encircle the earth almost three times whoa huh yeah this guy really traveled wait before the steam engine before the invention of the steam en- engine yeah I see. and he traveled uh a total of well if you compare like modern day countries uh-huh. the locations he visited he visited uh 40 modern day countries 14 or 40 40 40 oh wow four zero okay i mean it makes sense yeah four zero we covered that four much zero. distance whoa huh yeah it's crazy and you know when you ask most people the most well-traveled person you know that sort of thing a lot of people go for marco polo yeah i mean this is yeah yeah we'll, we'll get remind me to get into why in case i forget to mention why uh marco polo is who comes to mind aside the obvious european bias mm-hmm. the other reason why marco polo is who, who the person who comes to mind remind me to in case i forget I, to do I that i will I will. Okay. Yes. So let's get into Ibn Batuta. That sounded wrong. Okay. Good. Now see it right. Let's get into the topic 
of Eben Batota. Ah, Brian. Even when I don't try. But yeah, let's go. Let's go. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, um, all right. When you said let's go into the topic, I thought you were actually going to ask a question. That's why you mentioned that. I mean, well, well you you know, as in, so far we know is that he traveled basically three times yeah, the world, yeah. okay. 40 countries. But where is he from? Who is he? Right, right. Okay, I can't believe I actually left that part <laughs> out. Okay, so, um, Ibn Batota, uh-huh. um, born, well, he was born... Uh, as in his name, mm-hmm. um, Shams Aldin Abu Abdullah Muhammad Ibn Abdullah Ibn Muhammad. There's a whole bunch of Ibn. Yeah, and <laughs> I, was, I was. I can continue. I was going to ask where this was going. I mean, Ibn is like son of in in the whole Arabic. Yeah, son of. Yeah, son of. It's uh, for those who don't know, it's an Arabic um, way of you know um, getting your name. So Ibn this it been that you know son of this so it's like he's given an entire family tree uh, lineage yeah pretty much yeah (laughs) son of this son of this and that was like part of their name so if that's your full name like that's part of your name that's actually your name imagine you have to you have to write a you know like a pop quiz in five minutes you spend like two and a half of it writing you you spend the entire time (laughs) writing your name (laughs) yeah yeah pretty much yeah um yeah so um interestingly uh right now we call him ibn batota but uh back when he was alive he was more referred to by shams al-din mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yep okay so uh he was he was born in morocco he was a moroccan and amazigh ethnically an amazigh oh. from morocco tangier north africa mm. um and he was he was born into a family of uh kadi those are judges um islamic judges okay he was born in 1304 at the age of 21 just like every other devout muslim he decided to go on a journey to mecca for the hajj you know yes and that's where everything would you know blow up um he was set off to go for the Hajj pilgrimage, and after that, he decides not to go straight home, but to explore the world more. And his legend begins from there. Huh. I mean, I, I, now that you say he was born to like a family of of Kadi, I I understand. It's only DBs that will get up and decide I won't go home. Let me. That, <laughs> that yeah, that's actually <laughs> right. Um, also, for those who don't know who DB is, it essentially means rich kids. Yeah, yeah. Because he was 21 too. He left. He left very young. Um, one of the reasons he traveled was because, well, he could afford to because mm-hmm. he mm-hmm. he was from a well-off family. Yeah, they could decide. Yeah, he could decide to do that. Um, okay, so uh, Ibn Batuta traveled, like I mentioned, over 40 modern-day countries. He traveled a lot. His stories are a lot. The accounts are a lot, but um we will try to limit it to four specific um countries or locations in modern day countries that he visited um 
that we think are significant or I think are significant to the particular lesson here. Also because, you know, it's about Africa, so we don't want to cover a lot of, um, you know, non-African countries we <laughs> visited. We are biased to deal with it. Okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, before I proceed, do you have any questions? Uh, any more questions? No, I mean, you pretty much cleared up all those. So he was like 21. I'm guessing he was, he was like not married at all that's why he could afford to travel the world without scale well wait, he was it doesn't state whether he was married actually we don't know whether he was married for sure mm. but um the very interesting thing is that um by the time he returns home he would have m- been married at least eight times <coughs> yeah and had at least two children you know on his journeys huh. yeah, this man liked he liked he liked you know getting married ah <laughs> okay well let's not let that take time <laughs> okay, <that's good. laughs> if, if it will come up if it's relevant along this along the lines all right, all right. okay so let's start mm-hmm. with ibn batuta mm-hmm. um right so the first the first um relevant um what you call them location that he traveled to or i think i'll say to relevant to our topic uh that he traveled our discussion that he traveled to will be east africa mm. the, yes so i mean that's actually a bunch of countries he would end up in all right so let's start from how he got there in the first place okay so ibn batota like we mentioned at the beginning sets out to go on a hajj mm-hmm. in the year 1325 a.d Oof. he writes that he left his his family left his parents behind and set off to go on a pilgrimage right so um i'll you know along the way to east africa you know i'll be mentioning some of the countries or cities that he visited on the way there okay all right so he'll start off from his native morocco that's country one and then he goes on his own to algeria and uh from there he goes with a caravan to tunisia um he stays there for about two months after tunisia he goes to libya and in libya he gets his first marriage okay that's the first one how old was he um, at that point? I'm, I'm wondering 21 oh still 21 yeah he, at this point he had only spent about two months on the journey so far okay okay yeah um sorry not two months actually probably more like four months um yeah after libya he goes to cairo in egypt and then alexandria so it's at this point that it seems that he began to think about you know not just doing mecca but going beyond that Mm -hmm. so uh then he goes to um palestine slash israel and then he goes to syria uh he goes to you know damascus in syria um then he yeah in damascus he he lo- he really loved that city he loved that city so much that he had another another marriage there. oh good god okay <laughs> yes but then he divorced he divorced the lady wait, um but wait, he, he got the, a son he divorced the libyan lady no the um the syrian lady okay. so the funny the unfortunate thing is that he doesn't write much about his marriages so it's just like he'd write that at some point oh he married this woman or something if it's significant he'd mention it but so even the ones that he mentioned doesn't necessarily mean those are all the marriages he had i see Edibab. i see i see yeah hmm. so anyway um after syria where he he, he actually um the lady he married got pregnant um uh, later on on when after he has left you find out that he he has a son like later on 
so then he goes to perform the Hajj, yes, in 1326 AD. Hey, so this guy, wait, so he married twice before he would go to Mecca? Yeah, he married at least twice before he got to Mecca. This guy. That was in the space of one year. This guy. But keep in mind, though, Muslims, Muslims, their religion allows them to have four wives. I know, I know. It's just this guy. The, the, the key point is he has to balance four at least yes. at any given moment. Hmm. Love all of them equally. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> okay. <good. laughs> yeah, so after he moved to Mecca, he performed the Hajj and all of those things. Then he, you know, that was when he started to explore more. Oh, at this point in time, um, parts of the Arabic and Persian world, a significant, a large portion of the Muslim world was being controlled by the Mongols. Ooh, Genghis. Yeah, <laughs> well, not I know, not, not Genghis himself, himself, but at this yes, point, yeah, but like his his people. So at this point, yeah, Persia was under Mongol control. So he'll go to Persia, and then he, uh, at that point in time, was under what is called the Ilkhanate, yeah. and he meets the ruler called the Ilkhan, okay, uh, Abu Said, and he'd really kick it off with the guy. He'd be very impressed with the man and all of those sort of things, and. After that, he'd go to um, Baghdad in modern-day Iraq, which was also under the Ilkhanate at that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then he'd go to Azerbaijan. And then he'll come back to Mecca, um, rest, steady, you know, do all of those things. And then he'll move on to... He'll stay in Mecca for about a year. Hey. And then he'll move on to Yemen. Okay. Um, I should mention one thing that helped... Um, Ibn Batuta to do all these his travels was actually the fact that he was a caddy and being a scholar and judge of Islam um, people welcome him where he went because at this point in time he's traveling throughout the Muslim world Mm. so when people see oh a Muslim judge has come you know they respect him and those sort of things makes sense Um, yeah and he gets gifts and he really loved gifts this guy loved gifts this guy loved gifts so much that when he gets to um mali that's much later on and he receives gifts that he thinks are not you know up to his standard he he like he complains to the mansa's face mansa being the the emperor of mali Uh he complains to his face about the gifts he has received and then the guy gives him more (laughs) he loved gifts yeah (laughs) this guy and he he was he was quite the obnoxious um traveler he was like he was entitled i mean it, and it makes sense yeah because of his position mm-hmm. and as as it goes on a lot of the things he experienced made him you know made his head big i see anyway um right so after yemen then we are getting to the first significant location which is east africa he goes to a place uh he leaves yemen on a what do you call it a boat to a place called um zela vela zela yes zela and zela is in what do you call them modern day um uh somalia somaliland slash somalia you know it's a somaliland semi-autonomous region who have declared independence in somalia blah blah yeah that's what it is and yeah he so when he gets to zela right at this point in time he's still in the the you know the muslim world um what do they call it da al islam um that's like a term that historians use for that whole f- 
medieval Muslim lands. Um, so yeah, he actually didn't like that place. So when he gets to Zela and he sees all these, um, the the place was stinking according to him because there was a lot of fish and camel meat and blood on the streets. Like it was like a butcher's big big butcher's shop sort of thing in the open air, and he didn't really like that. Um, so he'd not get, and the place was very crowded. So he'd not get off the ship at Zela. He'd stay on the ship and then move on to Mogadishu, which is also in modern day Somalia. Mogadishu was a major port at that point in time. And he really was impressed by Mogadishu and the Sultan of Mogadishu would invite him in, you know, being a caddy. Now, one of the reasons why these places he goes to, the, some of them really welcomed him was that at, in many of those places, Islam was still a burden religion of sorts so the people were still now you know trying to follow proper adherence and those sort of things okay. so if a caddy comes yeah that's like yeah so they're like oh yeah this guy is very good useful he will help so when he got to mogadishu for example they gave him like a special house to live in and all of the they'll take care of his food sometimes they'll give him slaves you know sometimes they'll give him gold they'll give him silk like they'll give him a lot of things like the man at some points was he was like filthy rich they were, with all the they gifts really they gave weren't him. helping his kids i mean i'm, I'm sure his his yeah <laughs> they were helping his head grow bigger <laughs> it just kept going hey okay yeah so anyway mogadishu was a very good experience for him mm. and then he'd move on to mombasa which is in modern day kenya, kenya. yeah yeah and that's another place that um he would like and he he mentions that the people are sunni uh muslims um yeah he mentions that their their mosques are built of this this is one thing about ibn batota i should uh, i should mention in he mentions that the somalian the mombasa mosques are made of wood when they were actually made of um what do you call it coral now because he he recorded all of these in his head and he only repeated them at the end of his journey uh-huh. it messed with his memory a bit oh, so, okay. so he's reliable is in certain aspects yes but not everything is accurate i see huh. yeah so after that Mombasa, he goes to zanzibar and kilwa which are modern day tanzania mm-hmm. and after that he goes to oman you know after the east african trip he would end up let me just uh not talk because these ones are not african related <laughs> so let me like brush them all into it's one with one stroke okay sure so essentially he'd go back and perform another hajj and then he would want to go to the delhi sultanate in modern day india because the king the sultan there is paying you know muslim scholars a crap ton of money to come and then you know help properly islamize the place uh, so he'd go there and he'd pass through the chagatai chagatai khanate which is in central asia so he passed a bunch of countries there he went through anatolia modern day turkey um past parts of modern day russia as well hmm. and he'd go all the way to india after that after passing through the central Af- central uh asian you know 
Chagatai Khanate, and then he would end up in India. But then, unfortunately for him, even though things started well with the Indian Sultan, it did not particularly end well because the Sultan was evil and crazy. Um, I mean, this Sultan apparently um, sometimes um, executed people by having them like locking them with elephants that had knives on their tasks oh wow so the elephants like yeah yeah so it didn't end well for him particularly well for him um but then the sultan ended up you know bef- um the sultan was weird he asked him to be the the ambassador to china hey where the yuan dynasty was ruling and unfortunately for him that wouldn't go according to plan he gets shipwrecked he get robbed captured by rebels and blah blah <laughs> <laughs> uh, the guy went through a lot like he really went through a lot i mean, I mean and then he's had his life yes, breezy so if, far i mean this is this is this might have yeah. been to humble him hopefully it's worked. yeah <laughs> did his work it didn't okay. work it didn't work right after india he'll end up in maldives and then he'll be treated like a king over Aye. there he'll marry four times Aye. over Aye. there mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> yeah and then he'd end up going to um sri lanka um then malaysia then indonesia before finally arriving in china whoa yeah china was the second is the second significant part i wanted us to talk about because in china when he gets there that was the first country he went to and stayed where okay it wasn't the first actually but it was one of the few countries he went to and stayed where muslims were a minority well, and he'll freak him out because he goes there and then he complains about the paganism he complains about people eating pig <laughs> <laughs> but then at the same time he admires the place because it's like even the poor like the 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 monks who are poor wear like fine silk oh wow so he's like impressed by all of those things mm. and yet he complains about their religious stuff and, and no one no one give him like a, a firm beating for for this oh no he he didn't go and he didn't go and complain to anyone he kept it to himself ah, okay. or maybe when he met other muslims he okay. complained with so them he, or something he chronicled the yeah that guy but he didn't see it out sorry loud. like he, he basically wrote about it but he didn't see it out loud yeah, he didn't say it out loud nah. to them. Exactly. Good. <laughs> right. Um. So, that's China. Now, after China, he'd end up uh, going back to Morocco. Yeah. Now he returned to Morocco at the age of forty-five. Yeesh. He left at twenty-one. And he left at twenty-one. Came back at forty-five. That's like that's like more years. He was gone for a whole twenty-four years. Yeah, he was gone more years than. He- he had he had spent in Morocco prior yeah. to departure. <laughs> yeah, he lived outside Morocco longer than he lived inside Morocco at that point. Hey, okay, yeah, <clears throat> and he came back to meet so, his parents. Well, he came back. Um, the interesting thing is that he came back at the point which he came back. The Black Plague was happening. Oh, you know that disease that wiped out a crap yes, ton of Europeans yes, and Asians. Yes. You know, thanks to the Silk Road and Mongols and all of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he came back in 1349, and unfortunately, when he came back, he find out that both his parents are dead. Ah. Oh, yeah. Wow. And on the way, when he was coming back, he also learned that the kid he had in Syria died i mean did that shake yeah. him much i mean he went married four times already and, and I, I imagine he had a whole bunch of kids yeah okay, but he didn't he didn't well. mention how many did he <laughs> no 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 he didn't mention how many mm, i see 
Oh, so he's yeah. lost both um, parents and the kid. Yeah, he lost both parents and the kid. And then he he when he gets back to Morocco after some time, he hears that there is a war that's going to go on with the Spanish kingdom. So at this point in time, right, Morocco was or let me say the North African well, it wasn't Morocco as in modern day Morocco, but you get the idea. Okay. Yeah. Um it's not the exact same kingdom, but it's the same location. Mm-hmm. Um they were in control of the Iberian Peninsula what was called at that point um al-andalus because they had conquered it from the christians over there <laughs> and there was some sort of war that they were expecting to happen and so he was sent up to the army to go and fight but then when he gets there then the war doesn't happen anymore and then it's like oh well time to tour the place again i see so he tours al-andalus that's muslim Car- um, spain and portugal the iberian peninsula mm-hmm. and then he'll come back to morocco in 1350 hey now after he comes to morocco he would remember about the one one of the other places or one of the few muslim places he has not visited which is mali Mm, i see yes the the final significant location so we've rushed through um east africa Mm -hmm. um china yes and now mali okay and this is Uh, i think this is where the the quip from the beginning of the episode came from yes yes the quote from the beginning was from his account of modern day mali right mm-hmm. um he will he will pass through um a city a town called seljimasa i think it is mm-hmm. and then he'll pass through tagaza right. and then he'll end up in mali um eventually after several months because crossing the desert was is not easy <laughs> yeah you have to wait for caravan you have to wait for good conditions and all those things man suffered he actually fell sick at a point ah. and then <laughs> yeah he managed to arrive um but when he arrived like i said he was uh, pretty much a sports traveler at this point in time and so he was he got annoyed by the gifts he received at first which was just like food it was yogurt and something i've forgotten so like he he complained because you know everywhere else he goes he when he gets there he gets like you know gold and wives material proper things with <laughs> wives yeah <laughs> but um the first guy the first significant person he met was a governor of one of the regions and that was the person who gave him that and he was annoyed so like he was like nah man i ain't staying here for long let's go like to the proper mali and casa uh-huh. so eventually they leave um but then the interesting thing about mali is that um he gets annoyed by how non-strict they are with muslim traditions like he complains that the mansa allows his daughters to walk around topless that men and women talk freely and the the sexes mix with each other Uh, and he doesn't like all of those things because where he's from strict muslim traditions men and women don't merge like that i see so one of the yeah one of the men will actually tell him oh it's fine over here we treat both men and women the same what what and like he get terrified at a point that he would run out of a room when he sees like a man and a woman chatting and like he's he like he freaks out <laughs> this guy yeah but he <laughs> he did praise um, certain aspects of mali um one particular one that we will find disturbing in the modern day is the fact that he praised that um they tie their children to iron chains uh until they're able to memorize the quran whoa so 
yeah that was messed up <laughs> he witnessed a, a couple of festivals over there oh and the, like i said when he received the the gifts from the malian king mm-hmm. he he complained to the malian king's face like yo everywhere else i've been all the other sultans gave me a crap ton of stuff do you want me to go and tell them that this is what you gave me so the malian king um who was mansa suleiman mansa being the title for emperor yeah remember um, that. gave him a whole bunch of yeah gave him a whole bunch of gifts and was like ah, now we're talking wait, wait, is and this, then he'll he'll is visit this, is, other is, towns on his way out is this before or after mansa musa because maybe it was because the people were no rich. after mansa musa oh, okay so he had heard of mansa musa stories aha, it's likely aha. It makes well, he sense doesn't state but it's likely that he had heard of it it makes sense now that yeah he was probably heard yeah so, so when he came he was probably expecting you know him to like drown in gold or something mm-hmm. and they, they did all that to him <laughs> <laughs> oh good right God. so anyway Sheesh. okay so he left yeah, he leaves um, Mali. He's summoned by the king of uh, Morocco to return to Mal- um, Morocco. Mm-hmm. So he returns and then the king um, hires a chronicler called Ibn Juzai okay. to um, chronicle what's uh, Ibn Batota's stories. So Ibn Batota rec- recounts from memory all of the things he has been through. Oh. Now, unfortunately, he's recounting from memory. And at this point, he's about 47-ish years old. Mm-hmm. So, And he, he had traveled for over two decades. So you can verify, of yeah. course, it's not everything going to be perfect. Definitely. So some parts of, like I mentioned in East Africa, some parts in Mombasa, he said the mosque was made, made of wood uh, when yeah. it was actually made of coral. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then also, some parts of his thing are just pure lies. Um, ah. Because it seems that... Uh, <laughs> the the chronicler and ibn batuta maybe as well were trying to create a general like journal for muslim travelers of things so some parts where his memory is hazy they just like fabricate stuff um other parts they rely on other people's accounts not his but scholars the the stories that scholars are certain that are his Mm -hmm. um those are the ones that historians rely on today oh i see he gets it so all the ones i've told you right now there are stories that historians can confirm are actually here. So he actually did all these things I've mentioned, visiting over 40 countries, traveling over two times the circumference of the earth, being one of the few to come to uh, Mali mm-hmm. and all of those things. Okay. okay. Yeah. So these ones are the, so, the ones um, that are actually true. Yeah, uh, but he did a lot more that I haven't mentioned. It's just too much, man. Like uh, too, too much. I, I, I know. I'm glad we actually decided to put a limit on this episode because <laughs> yeah. I would have ended up a lot. Like yeah. Um. Anyway, so uh, Ibn Juzai and Ibn Batuta would write this book, and it will be published, but not many people will believe him mm-hmm. because yeah. I mean, the things that the, he spoke of were outrageous in the book, like. A Muslim man going all the way to China, so a Moroccan going all the way to China, China and yeah, then you yeah. know, all of those things. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the book they would um release will be called the <clears throat> now uh I hope uh Hajer is listening because I took classes just to pronounce this long title. Okay. <clears throat> Let's go. Mm-hmm. You can do it. It was titled. <laughs> it was titled. Tofat. Oh no! Sorry, hold on. <clears throat> what? It was titled. 
No, relax, relax. Okay, okay. The book was titled Tafat Al Anza Fi Haraib Al Amza Wa Ajaib Al Asfa. I tried. You you did try. Don't be me. <laughs> you you did try. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah, the book title is really long. It's a gift to those who contemplate the wonders of cities and marvels of traveling. Hey, I see. Yeah, so most modern scholars just call the book the Rehla, which is Arabic for travels. Oh, I see. So the travel. Yeah, the travels and not um, the Tafat Al Ansafi Haraib and all of those things because that's really long. Um, Yes, so that's a quick, that's a summary uh, of Ibn Batuta. Mm -hmm. And um, did did he have a. Eventually, right. Uh huh. Did he ever what? I've wondered, did he ever bring any of his wives home? Oh, no, he didn't. He came home alone. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, Ibn Batuta would die um, about a, either 18, sorry, 1368 or 1369. Mm-hmm. And um, not much is, not nothing actually is known about his life after he settled down and wrote the book. We don't know anything else. Okay. Um, and the book, the Rihla, was actually lost in you know time for a long period so many people did not know of ibn batuta Uh, until um yeah the colonial powers french uh france would stumble upon it in i think algeria and then it will be translated to multiple languages and then eventually English. and everyone is like yo this guy really did a lot of stuff uh, and then boom ibn batuta becomes famous several centuries after his death while he was alive he was not famous huh he only became famous several centuries after his death yeah okay so that that explains the whole marco polo thing yeah so that's that's one of the reasons why he wasn't known like marco polo because marco polo everyone still knew him even batuta like disappeared in time for a while before he was rediscovered and all of those things okay okay. yeah and now today he's probably the most famous amazigh man Mm -hmm. because he he has and airports are named after him in Tangier. There are like shops and restaurants named after him all over the Arab world and North Africa. And there is even a statue of him in China. Really? Don't ask me why. Don't ask me how. I'm confused as well. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you, you did that. Oh, and there's a crater on the moon named after him. Which country named the crater after him? I don't know, bro. Hey. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's an overview of ibn batota yo that's a lot <laughs> i mean what we try to squeeze yeah. in is a lot sheesh that is a lot like i even the, the the notes i have here are supposed to be short and even those i couldn't go into details of all of it huh. there was one part about um how he won um sultan in um i think it was kilwa he spoke about how the guy was so kind and handing out goodies when he was going out and stuff like yeah. that so he just, he just he just praises those who are who overly spoil him and then yeah ah, well yeah <laughs> <laughs> well that's it for today's episode of Africa's Untold Stories and the next episode we are going to West Africa back here yeah we coming right down from Morocco just like crossing the Sahara and just coming straight down yep. lovely mm-hmm. all right then um. 
Remember to follow us on Instagram at Africa's Untold Stories and on Twitter, Twitter at as at Africa's underscore Untold S. And uh, wow, can't believe we actually. Oh, we tried. Yeah, we did. To try. limit the we minutes, we, we got we got pretty close. Mm-hmm. We got pretty mm-hmm. close. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you for joining us over for today's episode. Mm-hmm. And until the next time. See you around. Yeah. Wait. Oh. Peace. Peace.